Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, Thanksgiving is coming up, and uh, the lovely Joanne is cooking this year, which I'm glad because I figured out, you know, we have to buy the turkey, we have to buy all the other stuff. But a few years ago, I went to a party, and they said, bring dessert. So I went to Thanksgiving, and I thought, okay, you know, everyone brings pumpkin pie. And, you know, Marie Callender's has the stuff for like $7.99. I was like, all right, no, I said, I'm going to go a little bit different. I'm going to get a pumpkin cheesecake. Now, my philosophy wasn't a pumpkin cheesecake, first of all, no. No one wants to eat cheesecake after they're stuffing themselves with turkey. And it's just no good. So I order from Ray Calendars and I get the butt line because if you're getting the pumpkin cheesecake, you get the butt the line because everyone else is waiting for the $7.99 regular cake, pumpkin pie. So I get up there and it was $34. And I sit there and at this point, you can't sit there and say, I don't want the pumpkin cheesecake because you look like a cheap dick because everyone's sitting there seeing your butt line. So my thing about this Thanksgiving is we're having people bring the desserts. We said bring it and I don't want any pumpkin cheesecake. And if you're out there, people, when you buy a pumpkin cheesecake, get the price first so you don't get sticker shock. Anyway, enough about that. We have a great guest today, uh, a very funny guy who I've actually, I, I saw him in uh, the movie Heat, The Heat, and then I, I saw him on, he's been a lot of t- commercials, I saw him on Veep, and, I, and he's in the show Legit, and I said, I have to hit this guy up, because he's just funny, and he's a good actor, and, and I, I went and did some research, he's a second city, he's out of Chicago, from Minnesota, my guest is Dan Bacchanal. How you doing, Dan? Hey, I'm good, thanks for having me, man. So, now, it's funny, because now you, you come from Minnesota, you originally, you were born in, how long were you in Minnesota for? Uh, about uh, 13 months. Oh, that's it? Yeah, and then we moved to Florida, and I came back in college. I went, uh, my first two years, I went to uh, St. Cloud State. Yeah, I saw that on your resume, because it's sort of weird. You go, I didn't know you moved to Florida, it doesn't say that, but you go from St. Cloud State to Florida State, and it's like, wow, I mean, for a kid, that must, I mean, just for you going to school in Florida, that must have sucked, because you grew up in the heat. Yeah, culture shock, you know, I mean, it it was a culture shock going to St. Cloud to begin with, because... Uh, one personalities are different. It's that down home Midwest. Right. It was a small university, so it was even more of a kind of a suitcase college. I had a great time up there. Problem was, I learned how to uh, roll joints and, and drink Rumplemans. Yeah, we all did that you in know. college, though. But I learned how to do it. I learned how to do it uh, expertly to the point of uh, I think I had like a one point two when I was leaving there, and that was that was being generous. Somebody had given me a couple of incompletes in order to uh, to not achieve a, a sub one uh, grade point average while I was there. How did you pick St. I mean, like of all the, like we're going, like I went to, me and Joanne went to a state school in New Jersey. Yeah. I had to pay for my two years of my own school, so yeah. I'm going to go to a state school. Yeah. How did you pick that? I mean, especially you're leaving Florida. Well, my dad, my dad still lived up there. Okay. And I wanted to get uh, closer to the old man, and I was like, well, I'm going to go up there. Now, University of Minnesota is gigantic. It's a city in and of itself. And I thought, I don't want, if I'm going to go to a big school, I'll just stay here and go with my friends at Florida or Florida State, you know? And uh, I thought, well, then I want to go to a smaller one. My dad lived in Rochester. Uh, Mankato State was right there, but Mankato State was kind of small. And the only Man- Mankato is very close to where Little House on the Prairie took place. Okay. So you get an idea of what yeah. that's going to be like. <laughs> and I thought, man, that just seems too cold and too unforgiving. I looked at Duluth. Duluth looked great because it was a city, but it was even farther north, and it was right on the the lake. And, Ever- you know, you're talking. Edmund Fitzgerald weather up there. So I was like, all right, somewhere in between is this nice little valley, St. Cloud. You know, beautiful city. Uh, My cousin had gone there. I had two cousins who had gone there. And I thought, man, it's a beautiful little town. It's not that far from the cities. That's what they call Minneapolis and St. Paul. And I thought, 
fine, I can do that. I'm, I'm an hour and a half, two hours away from my dad, so I can go visit him on weekends when I want to, work in the bar. He, he owned a bar at the time. And uh, I thought, well, what the hell? Let's give it a shot, see what happens. So I went up there, and I, they were on trimesters, so I didn't even make it a full two years. Okay. I went one and two-thirds. <laughs> <laughs> what was your major? Uh, at the time, I was in communication. I always wanted to act. I wanted to be an actor. When did you find that out? When you were a little kid? or when, uh, did you, Yeah. What, yeah. How did that come about, that that? that that my, you, know you wanted to. My uh, my stepdad, who I grew up with, I call him my dad. He uh, he always bought the first of everything. So when in, when Atari came out, you know, we had an Intellivision, which was the first thing to answer Atari. Right. When uh, when uh, you know home entertainment systems came out, the Betamax. He had the first Betamax, not Betamax two, but the first Betamax one hour tapes. So. Did, did you have the laser disc? Yeah, we got the laser disc. <laughs> our our laser discs, and I don't want to forget where we were going, but I have to talk about this. Our laser discs were the Sting. Okay. Um, we had Car Wash, Superman Two, Slapshot, and um, Flight. Uh, not Flight of the Concords. <laughs> Night of the Concord. All great movies. Yeah, yeah, really great movies. I mean, they were only putting the best on there. And then Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Bee Gees, and Peter Frampton. Yeah, was, yeah. abysmal, horrible, but. <laughs> I was six or seven or eight at the time. So to me, it was, I loved the Beatles more than anything at the time. So to me, it was, this is the Beatles being done by, you know, the most popular musicians of the day. You've got uh, the fifth Beatle in there. Right. Um, uh, was it George Ben? Not George Benson. George was Best. George, no, but, uh, George, George Best. No, Peter Best. No, no, no. The, uh, the, uh, the, the fifth Beatle, the black guy that played uh, oh, um, uh, piano and stuff on, on Let It Be and so forth. I think it was Benson, wasn't it? It might have been anyway, George Benson. Anyway, I might be confusing it with the TV show Benson. No, no, there was a guy, George yeah, Benson. Yeah, George Benson. He played the, uh, the cornet player. But anyway. Um, and uh, They were great to look at. Yeah, no, it was fantastic to I, look I at. I don't know why I never took off. Really? I, do you know why? It what? was bad. It was bad. That was that was one reason, and two, it was you know you're doing covers of the Beatles songs, and they were no. all still alive. No, I, I meant I meant the the the, the oh the, the discs, because yes. they looked great. Oh man, like you opened it up and there was a I picture. Think, I think a big part of it was that um, you the, at least the ones that we had. Like I said, Dad got the first of everything. So the ones that we had, Car Wash was a two disc movie, and they were like twelve. They were like uh, you know like thirty three and a third, like an album. You know they you had to put that on flip it over and then take that off and put the other one on and then flip it over so it was like a double album to watch a so movie sucked. you know it, that sucked it made it easy for things like slap shot when you were like i want to look at that boobs right scene you know and you just be like well that's side three two minutes in <laughs> so you'd put side three on two minutes in you didn't have to fast forward through the whole thing the point of this story was why you got the dad <laughs> got dad got uh of the first um VHS camera. Now those things were huge, and that thing was bigger than the cameras that we currently use on legit. Okay, a, 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 a major production <laughs> being done by a respectable network with the best cameras in the in the business were smaller than what we had in 1977 or 78. My dad got it right, and this was a giant camera that probably weighed 15 pounds, and then you carried around a VCR which is what it recorded onto. So huge 10-gauge cable going down to this VCR that carried a full two-hour videotape in it. And then a 15-pound battery pack, which was the size of a loaf of bread, but made of battery. You know, <laughs> so this thing was 15, 20 pounds. So the whole, the whole get-up was around 45 pounds. So as a 7- and 8-year-old, I wasn't allowed to use it because I couldn't. I right, couldn't pick, pick it up. up. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so Dad got that. And my older brother, Dale is an engineer and he was always he was the kid that would take the gi joe truck 
and he would take a Cox model airplane and he'd break the engine out of the Cox and he'd stick it on a piece of wood and jam it onto the back of G.I. Joe, start that thing up and G.I. Joe's doing 60 down the street. Right. You know? <laughs> so Dale had the idea of doing our own Twilight Zone. So Dale and my other brother, Tom, scripted this whole Twilight Zone thing and they wouldn't let me play. And I was furious. And it was just kind of like I was outside the door seething. It was Shakespearean in a way because it's like, oh, I'll get you. Right. You'll all pay. <laughs> you won't let me play? You're going to the tower and you're going to be executed. And um, I sat outside the door listening to them shoot the scenes. And I was like, man, I wanted to be a part of it so badly. I didn't understand why. It might have just been that sibling uh, jealousy thing. The next project they made was our very own Saturday Night Live. And this was, uh, so it would have been 77, 78. No, were you, a fan, were you a fan of Saturday Night Live? I wasn't. I was, oh, you couldn't in, watch I it. was in bed at 10 o'clock. Okay. You know, and, and in Florida, that's it, man. It doesn't even come on for another hour and a half. But all my brothers and sisters were, oh, no, Mr. Bill and, and uh, Lisa Lubner and all this. And I, I knew all the bits, but I'd never seen it. That's amazing. So they, along with uh, my brother's uh, childhood friend, Vinny Macciaroli, who we've lost touch with. Vinny, if you're out there, where are you? It's another good name. Yeah, Vinny, Ma- Ma- Vinny Manciroli. I don't want to say too much about Vinny. I f- we feel terrible about what happened, but Vinny's dad was found in a trunk of a car. Okay, so that's like a guy. And, I then, went- they, and then they went away. Yeah, that's like a guy I went to high yeah, school with. It was I, like his father back in this is New Jersey. Yeah. His father worked in the air conditioning business, yeah, they were, but his house had all like the marble when you oh. walked in and the Christmas lights. It was like they're like their last initial. The yeah. big C yeah. was like on, the, on, the, on a coming from the thing, and then they have Jesus on the half shell up front. Yeah. And it was just you sit there and go, "I'm sorry, air conditioning people don't make, don't make that, that much kind of money. money. No, you know, they live in there. a mansion. Maybe in uh, maybe in Arizona, modern day, but not back then. No, and I, you know, I hope that I hope his name is now you know marty goldberg and he's selling insurance somewhere and he's alive and well anyway so their second project was we're going to do snl you know with the whole you know live from golden beach that was a neighborhood we lived in 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 south florida in miami beach and uh and they said well if you want to do a piece you can do a piece what do you want to do and i was like i don't know what is there to do and i had this machete which i called a machevy at the time (laughs) and i had this machete which i loved carrying around and hacking the bushes with and stuff it was, you know, the 70s in South Florida. Things were crazy. And uh, they said, well, you know what? You got that sword. You can be the samurai delicatessen. So I did the John Belushi, Belushi yeah. scene. And I didn't know anything about it. There's the whole thing where he pulls the sword out and puts it back in the sheath over and over again, you know, like, right. you know, the sexual innuendo thing. And I didn't know what it was. They just went, now do this. And I went, oh, and did the movement, you know, the in out. Didn't have any idea what I was doing. And... uh when they finally edited it together, which meant they hooked the camera VCR up to the TV VCR and, you know, went back and forth, right. you know, pause, record, pause, record, pause, record. When they finally were finished and I got to watch it, I was blown away. And I was, I was sure that that's what I was going to be doing. I was like, give me the camera. I want the camera now. And I took the camera and I did my own life. And you fell over because it's yeah, 45 exactly. pounds. Ah. Well, they, Dad would put it on a <laughs> tripod for me and I did my own laughing. And I had, you know all the bits from laughing you know all the uh the bad you know old knock knock jokes and open the door jokes and Artie johnson coming out of the bushes yeah, very interesting ridiculous <laughs> stuff that i still didn't understand and to this day i'm not sure if i got it right but you know i did some of my own social commentary about um uh oh, what was her name uh, uh anita bryant because at the time anita bryant was the big face of florida orange juice Yet there was this under underbelly side of her being anti-gay. Right. Rights. I remember when someone, a gay man, put a pie in her yeah. face. Yeah, I remember that. And I didn't know what any of it meant. I just knew that she was in trouble with a certain group of people. 
And so I did this whole thing about we breaking news story. Anita Bryant has been elected president. And that was my my big uh, news segment. I didn't understand uh, anything about uh, gay rights or that presidents were only elected every four years and that they weren't just suddenly elected, you know? And I was like, oh, I'm getting out of here. So I stood up from the from the desk and I was in my underwear. I was wearing a suit with my underwear on. And I'm guessing I stole that from one of these shows because it couldn't have been an original idea. And it was like, news guy in his underwear. Um, and as I showed that to the family and everybody roared. You know, because they couldn't believe that an eight-year-old kid was making this stuff up on his own right. and creating it. So that's where that was born. Now, the thing from there was I was also a fairly smart kid that knew there was no way you can make it in show business because it's just too competitive. And, you know, but you're also not, you're not also possible. tall. Yeah. Did you play sports? Could you get no, to like 6'3", 6'4"? No, I, I think I'm 6'1". You look taller. Uh, it's probably my hair. Yeah. Because mine makes me five. I lose height with yeah, mine. <laughs> yeah, if I took my hat off, trust me, I'd lose a foot. You know, you'd, know, you'd see how bald I am. Um, but, uh, no, I, I tried, you know, like with most things. I mean, I say this to Jim Jeffries is the star on Legit. Uh, brilliant stand-up, and he's got many talents. Stand-up is just one of them. The guy can sit down at a piano and play Hey Jude. Okay. You know, these are the sorts of things that I always was like, man, if I could play a musical instrument or if I could write creative stories or do chemistry or I'd be doing anything other than what I'm doing because I would not have tried this. But this turned out to be the only thing I could really do well. I tried to play football, and my first season I broke my elbow. The second season I got a hernia. Ninth grade, and I had I, they do the hernia test for everyone, and you know they're like, turn your head and cough, yeah. turn your head and cough, turn your head and cough. Uh oh! And everyone in the room was like, oh, back it all's got a hernia. And even the broken elbow—that's like you don't hear people a lot that break. Even like you never hear a pro no. athlete breaks his elbow. Not you know? in eighth grade, even. It's like in eighth grade you're made of concrete and rubber. You know, that's nothing you breaks. Wear, you wear the tough skins because they never rip. You just fall over, exactly. and you get up, and you fall over. Your clothes destro- get destroyed before any of your flesh. So you knew you wanted to act yeah. as a young kid. Yeah, but then you went into the communication major not theater now did you do theater in high school at all right no in in high school i did uh i was in one acting class and it was the uh easy a class right the class everyone was doing to get an a and the woman hated me and there was a guy in there that was like a junior in high school and i was a freshman and he was a football player and he hated me i guess he knew my brother that's my guess and not many kids with the name back at all walking around this world and right. so he knew and i look like my brother and so he decided to make it his mission to make my life hell in that class and it wasn't like you know it wasn't like traditional bullying of like oh, you're this you're that it was like i'm gonna kick your ass when this class is over you better run and as soon as class is over i'm down the hall you know and my buddy scott would try to get in between you know trip him up so uh, I got cast in that play, but then I dropped out of it like two days before. I have this running theme in my life of like leave before they leave type okay. of thing. And so in that production, I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to do this thing, go up there in front of people and fail. I, got, I know how to control this situation. You quit before they start. She was furious, and I didn't do anything again. I didn't know acting until I got to college, and I was a communications major, wanted to go into advertising. I had seen the movie uh, Nothing in Common. Which yeah, was with, the, uh, yeah, with the, uh, Tom uh, Hanks and, and, Jackie Gleason. and Jackie Gleason. And it was all about Tom Hanks being this big, you know, uh, uh, ad man. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to write advertisement because they're short, they're sweet. I could do it. I know I could do this. So that was my, bra- my great idea. I went off to St. Cloud State to study communications and I loved it. But I was taking theater classes because I thought, well, you got to have some electives. 
and why not do this thing that I love? And they give you your two credits or whatever it is, and it doesn't matter. You're going to pass, and it doesn't matter what those electives are, and mine happen to be in the arts. And uh, so then I declared myself a theater minor. Okay. Which uh, I told someone that once, and they went, huh, you a freshman? <laughs> and I thought, oh, is it that obvious? Like, that, that like I would choose that as a minor is clearly like, yeah, clearly you're... Because if you're going into communications, you better get business or some other language or something english something as your as your minor if you're going to minor in anything but anyway so um i started doing uh uh those classes but i didn't audition for anything and i had a friend who auditioned and he got cast in a play and it honest to god you know at that time in my life it seemed like i was standing next to you know uh patty lapone right like, you're doing what you're gonna do the school play like i can't believe oh my god at this small university and um uh, needless to say, a girl got involved at some point, a girl in Florida, and I decided I need to move home to be closer to her. And my grades were horrible anyway. So I came home and went to a community college and uh, just uh, high school with ashtrays. That's what they call right, it. Right, that's what I called my, yeah. I, like yeah. I called our college Club yeah. Med with ashtrays. Yeah, exactly. The li- no, it's Club Med with a library, yeah. basically. And we, uh, and we uh, I studied my ass off and I got really good grades and I did two years worth of school in about six months. I took 40 credits a, a semester, and I did it for two semesters and just banged it out, got my AA, my associates, and then uh, decided I was going to go to Florida State. That's where my brother went, and that's where my sister had gone. And I had another sister that had gone there. I had friends that were going there, and I was like, I'm going to go there, and they got a great football program. So that'll be fun to watch. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, That was my whole plan. And when I got there, I tried to do the old communications with the theater minor thing. And uh, turns out Florida State, in addition to having a great football program, has a fantastic communication school. And you have to be like a, a, you know, a high B, you know, a 3.9 just to get into communications. And then to get into advertising, you have to be knocking it out of the park. And I was nowhere near that. Even though I'd gotten really good grades at this community college, they were transfer credits. And some of them counted towards electives, not towards regular anyway. And that wasn't going to happen. So I decided to be a theater major. And uh, minor in communications because there was no requirement for minoring. And I went and saw one of the uh, the uh, directors of um, you know placement and so forth. You know, what a guidance counselor yeah. type of thing at the state school. They have a different name. Like I forget, yeah, ours, I, I forget mine was, was called. It was a, it was a, it wasn't it was a guidance like, counselor. It was like a preceptor. There, yeah, ours, ours was called a preceptor. Yeah, and ours like, was like a ours was like a an enrichment advisor right. or something <laughs> like that. You know, and I. Uh, I went to her and I sat down and I said, look, I'm only doing this theater thing because I can't get into communication school. And she said, do you know how many times we hear that? You're out. And they were going to throw me out of the theater school. So I changed majors to psychology and then sociology and history and all these different. I didn't know what I was going to do because I kept running away from the one thing that I actually wanted to do, which was acting. And um, so I finally said, "Okay, I'm going to commit. And I committed to being a theater major, as ridiculous as that sounds. But I committed to it, and I, you know, read the plays, and I did the homework, and I did my best, and took makeup class and wardrobe class and set construction and all that, and I learned a ton about how to sew a button on and how to set a light and how to rewire a, a, a plug if it, you know, shorts, you know, all these things. The great practical experience that I got in theater school. You know? Right, yeah, the button. A, yeah, <laughs> but really, truly, it's like I could put a zipper on. I See, put a zipper on my hoodie. I'm not wearing it. Uh, anyway, um, 
and then I, I started auditioning for, for the plays at the school theater. They had a great school theater. And I actually got cast. And then I got cast again. And I got cast again. And eventually one of my instructors, Michael Ritchie, said, <coughs> you know, if you actually applied yourself to this thing, you could make a living as an actor. He told my parents that. And, uh, and my mom told me. And I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. Because I would have thought that he would have said, listen, it's nice that you're talented and blah, blah, blah. But you want to make a living eventually. Why don't you go get your teaching degree and do what I'm doing? And, and his thing was just the opposite, which was don't become a teacher, be an actor. If you're right. an actor, you got to act. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, uh, the best route is to go to one of these theater conferences. They had the Southeastern Theater Conference, the SCTCs. They had them in Savannah. And it's a huge beer bash and, you know, orgy where you audition for 100 theaters all at once. And then you get callbacks over the weekend and you go to the hotel rooms and do the callbacks. And maybe you get a job. And I got a job with a theater company that toured out of Texas. Okay. And they did repertory theater work. And they took us all over the country and we went through Chicago. And one of the old members of the company uh, lived there, and one of the girls in my company knew the guy, and he said, hey, let's go to the Second City, you know, for fun. And I was like, I've heard of the Second City. That's like Dan Aykroyd and those guys came from there. Like, yeah, let's do that. And we went and we saw the show. And as you walk in the Second City in Chicago, the walls are covered with photographs of everyone from, you know, uh, um, the Alan Arkins and... and uh, and Severin Darden and, and, and so forth, all the way up to the, the, um, the Mike Myers and Chris Farley's right. and so forth. And on stage at the time was a very unforgettable cast, and I don't remember the, the specifics of the show. I just remember it wasn't good. And I thought, God, I can do this. This is bad. I can be bad, and I can do it here. And look at the people on the wall. They must have been bad at some point too. So I uh, moved to Chicago with that intention. And then I stayed away from it for two years and just so, did theater. Oh, because you just did theater when you yeah. moved up there. When okay. I first moved, I just did theater. I was scared to death to go in the building because of the pictures on the wall. You know? But you were working. As a th you, were, mm -hmm. you were working as an actor. Yeah, I worked. Uh, I had a day job delivering flowers. And when too many of that guy's checks bounced, I went and got another job. I got a day job at a, uh, at a PR firm. So funny enough, I wound up working in communications uh, by complete happenstance. And they were trying to groom me. Uh, to kind of become an account guy when I was working in the mailroom and so forth. I think they sensed that I had a creative vibe, and they were like, what the hell? You know, we pay other people a lot more. We pay them a lot less and right. get ideas, and maybe they don't work. But And I uh, left that job. That was one of those jobs, and I went, I'm out of here. What are you talking about? Ah, I'm leaving. And I left on a Friday afternoon. I just walked out the door. Well, Goodbye. Good. See that? You know. But the thing was, it was that thing where it was like, i got to be here Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, the the commute and all that shit and all my whoops uh, all that and all my friends are out after the play we were doing a play together and they'd all stay out and they'd be like ideas and jamming and talking about and how are we gonna how are we gonna fix the world with theater you know and I was like nah, I gotta go yeah I gotta go you know, gotta or go. I have to get up with an incredible hangover and I just kind of said I didn't come here to work in a PR firm if I want to work in a PR firm I can do that in Orlando. You know, work in a mailroom, and the cost of living is a lot less. So I walked out the door one day, and that weekend I got a job teaching a workshop at the Second City. But you got it. No, you hadn't been in the Second City. No, I had been taking their classes, and I had been working at the Improv Olympic, which is now the I.O. Uh, I had been doing improv classes and improv shows, and a guy named Miles Stroth, who's a brilliant improviser, runs his own workshop now, uh, the Miles Stroth Workshop. Uh, just a, one of the, I think... I mean, hands down for me, the most brilliant 
improv mind there is. And uh, he selected me, handpicked. Somebody else couldn't do the show, and he said, why don't you come do the show with me? And we did a two-man show for two years. And so Second City was aware of me, but they weren't really hot on me because I wasn't their style. I was a little more dark. We did an edgy show. We did a lot of very dark humor. Now, was it all improv or was it written too? Ours was all improv. Okay. And theirs is all written. They use improv as a tool. And um, they eventually came calling and, and said, you know, I was working in their business theater doing, you know, shows for Pella Windows and so forth. You know, like, you know, hey, isn't isn't the president Jimmy, you know, the president of the company, isn't he a golf lover? <laughs> and they'd fall out of their chairs laughing because you knew the guy's name and some specific about him, you know. And you made good money at it. And the folks in the business theater went to the creative theater side, you know, the theatrical side, and said, you know, this guy's really good. You should put him in one of the touring companies. And they went, yeah, 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 we got a lot of good people. And they, you know, didn't didn't pick me up. But um, one day somebody couldn't go on their tour, and they needed somebody last second. The bus leaves tomorrow morning. And they said, what about Dan Bacadol? And two people said, what about Dan Bacadol? And they were standing there going, what about Dan Bacadol? And Eventually, the producer said, fine, he's just filling in for 10 days anyway. It's, he's not hired. And I said, that's fine with me because my thinking was. Get me in there. I'm going exactly. to set it Same up to play. Same thing Michael Ritchie had told me, which was, if you apply yourself, you can do this. And I thought, I'll just apply myself. I'll just knock it out of the park the best I know how. And um, when I got back from that tour, I got a letter saying, you have not been hired to the touring company. And two days later, I got a call saying, you've been hired to the touring company, which is great. I still have that letter. And um, then I toured for two years, and I did USO tours with the uh, with the Second City. We went to Bosnia and Kosovo and uh, Saudi Arabia and Dubai and Bahrain. And now, who were some of the people in that touring? Because I've had people in here who've been involved with, with like I, Rose Abdu yeah. and Kate Flannery and yeah, stuff like I that. Toured with, uh, I toured with John Lutz, who was a, a writer on SNL and then became Lutz on 30 Rock. He was in the writer's room on 30 Rock. Okay. He was lots, bald guy? Yep. Okay. Kind of balding. He's got a lot more hair than you or I. But okay. Yeah, he's but he's... Yeah, I've, yeah, he's a bigger guy with big googly eyes, but um, fu- hilarious guy. Funny, funny guy. I toured with him. I toured with uh, uh, Mary Beth Monroe, who is on Workaholics on uh, Comedy Central, and I toured with Peter Gross, who is now a writer. Uh, he, uh, Peter Gross and John Lutz are both now staffed on, on Seth Meyers' new version of Late okay. night. Late night. All right. So they're going to be two of the uh, big writers over there. Uh, but Peter was a writer over at uh, Colbert for a long time. And um, I'm trying to think of who else I toured with. Karen Gracci. Uh, so you uh, toured with a lot of good. Was, yeah, a lot, lot of really And that was for two years? A lot of really great people. Yeah, for two years we toured. And people come and go. You know, like, uh, uh, you know, Peter left and John came in. And then uh, this guy Bob left, and then Tom Flanagan came in, and you know it's, it, there's a lot of turnover. You know, you'll you'll be the same group for about four months, then someone leaves, and you're the same group for four months, and someone leaves. Okay, you know. Um, but we toured the world together. You know, and so must have been a great uh, experience. It was fantastic. The journey was so much better than the destination because we got when I finished touring, my last tour was uh, a USO tour to Bosnia and Kosovo, and it was great. Just a great experience. I've heard the crowds there are just so amazing because they're just starving for yeah, the, theater, really, the performance. I don't know what other people's experiences are, but my experience was, man, they would have they would have applauded if all we did was stand up there and tell them our hometown because they were just like, you're from home. You right. Know, they were so grateful. I've heard, I've have, heard the comics go say it's just yeah. unbelievable. You sit there and go, and you just walk off stage. You're like, wow. Dude, yeah. I'm really, I wish I was appreciated all this time. Yeah, no you kidding. Know? It's like, I wish no everyone kidding. always thought this. 
So, but, yeah. you, so you got back from the tour. So what, what do you do then? I got back and I told him I don't want to tour anymore. I'm going to go back to doing the business theater and, and you know, play my card in the, the, the theatrical voiceover and television and movie stuff that the little bit that does happen in Chicago, I put myself in that ring and I got hired for the main stage in Second City. And that's the stage where, you know, just a couple of years before Tina Fey and, and uh, uh, Horatio Sands and, and um, uh, Rachel Dratch and Kevin Dorff, et cetera, et cetera, Scott Adsit and all these amazing performers had just been there a couple of years before. And I was like, whoa, this is exactly what I moved to the city for. That's the show that I saw when I sat in the audience and I saw all the pictures and I said, I want to be on that stage. I got that job. And I did that job for about a year and I didn't love it. <laughs> I loved I loved the experience of getting there and then once I got there I went, Oh, I was never really suited for this. This isn't it's not Why? really just, what it, it wasn't it didn't fulfill you it just because it was more not the improv or was it I mean, what yeah, was Yeah, I think it was the latter. I think it was I think it was that when I found out that improv was really just a tool and you improvise a thing and then you catch it on tape and then you re-improvise it based on that tape and then you re-improvise it and re-improvise it. And then it kind of loses the spontaneity and the fun for me that I don't know that I possessed the strength in that muscle the way that you needed to in order to succeed at that job. So I think that, um, you know, I, I, I bowed out none too graciously. You know, it was a big, you know, blowout and uh, public <clears throat> just could shaming. You, you didn't. You didn't feel it was getting. They anywhere? had. You know, here's the. Hmm. The specifics of it were: uh, the Second City has tried f- forever to recreate what they did with SCTV to create a television show that was was um, uh, relevant. You know, they've created many shows since SCTV, but nothing that was really relevant, nothing that stayed. And they've been trying and trying. And they had an opportunity with a particular uh, uh, television division of a large studio, a big Hollywood studio that wanted to come out there and look at all the archive material at Second City, the 50 years of, at the time, 45 years of history of sketches and so forth, and have partial ownership of that. I'll get some of the specifics wrong, but the general idea is the same, which is they wanted to be able to look at all that stuff and say, hey, this scene that was written back in 1969, we want to take this scene and develop it into a TV show. What would then happen is Sony and Second City would split that money, and then Second City would take a little weeny teeny piece of that money and give it to the six members of that cast that created that material. So you wrote a song with your band and then a record company comes along and says hey we're gonna you know make that song huge and that song doesn't get huge and it kind of goes away somebody else wants to come and cover it the record company's going to take all the money and you the songwriter are going to get a nickel okay you know and you go but i wrote this song i own i still own that song that's my song at the second city no you don't the minute you do it on their stage it belongs to them and that's you know that going into it that's the agreement right i didn't like the agreement uh, so I don't want anything to do with the agreement. Don't invite me to any of the uh, confabs. Don't I don't want to be a part of any of the uh, the the you know, they were putting together these um, showcases and so forth. I don't want to be in any of that. And they said, okay, fine. You know, uh, they invited the entire second ca- the cast of the ETC, which is the other stage there. They invited that entire cast, and then in my cast, they invited three people. And there were six of us, and I asked not to be invited, so I expected five. They didn't invite two of the other cast members. Just didn't invite them. I was furious because I thought, you know what, it's okay if we opt out, but you can't just opt out on us. You have to represent us all equally. You have to put 
if we're all going to get the same shaft job nickel right. off of the scene, then we have to all get the same fair shake. And they said, yeah, well, truth be told, you don't make the rules. And they have a point because I don't. Right. It's their show. <laughs> uh, but we sat down to sign our, a contract for them, which basically said, if you're going to do the next show, you have to sign this agreement with this studio thing, too. And I said, I don't want to sign the studio thing. And they said, then you can't work here. And I said, all right, I'll sign the thing. So I signed the thing. And then they made their selections, and they selected certain cast members. They selected two cast members from my cast, and they selected all six from the other cast. So only two from my cast were going to get to go to Hollywood for the big showcase. And they selected a scene that I wrote with a woman that was no longer on the cast who had gone on to write at SNL. And I said, hold on a second. You're going to use my scene with two different actors, and they're going to get any credit at all for this is phenomenal because I wrote it with this other woman and they said yes this is part of the agreement if you don't like it you know there's the door right and so i punched the wall and walked out the door and um i broke my hand and you know came back with a broken hand and said all right forgive and forget Nah, i can't do it i gotta quit and i quit okay again on a friday afternoon i just kind of went to hell with you guys i'm out of here you can't do that and i said yeah i can and the uh, producer uh emeritus at the time was a woman named Joyce Sloan who used to be the executive producer she used to be the big creative honcho over there so if you ever spoke to uh, Carell or Colbert or you know Alan Arkin folks like this are going to know Joyce Sloan and they're going to have fond old memories with their days of Joyce being their battle axe you know but anyway she put her arm around me and said you're making the right decision you're standing up for what you think is right and good for you I was scared to death but it was Chicago so that means you could get by on 500 bucks a month. And I just thought, you know what? I, I, I didn't come here to create for them, and I didn't come here to do television ideas for them. I came here to do improv with them, and it turns out that's not what they do. Then I can walk away. You know? So where do you go? So I went to the bar. <laughs> for uh, for a few months and sat in the dark really mad and really hurt and offended. And, you know, I know now that I was uh, – I was fully, I was within my right to say no thank you and walk away, even on the day of, to go no notice, goodbye. I didn't have to do all the shenanigans I did to get attention around it. But I sat in the dark mad and drunk for a while there. And then uh, I got a job writing copy at an advertising agency. Uh, uh, Foot Cone Belding in Chicago had decided that they wanted to take advantage of all the talent that was there. All the folks that were there that were sketching improv artists, bring them in, let them write comedy uh, copy and see what happens. And I got pulled into that uh, group and uh, did that for about six months, and I was in heaven. I loved it. And one day I get a call from Sharon Halpern, who was the uh, artistic director, owner of, of the I.O., previously Improv Olympic, and she said, I've got the Daily Show coming on Thursday. I've got SNL coming on Wednesday. And I'm shooting a DVD to explain to people how to do this work on Saturday. Can you do those? And I was like, yes, finally, someone's paying attention. So I came in and auditioned for SNL, and it was abysmal. It was not good. But the next night I came in and read for The Daily Show, and right in the room they basically said, can you move to New York? And I, and I responded with, yeah, that'd be nice. Thank you very much. Take care, you know. And they went, no, 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 go outside. There's another script. Get that script. Prepare it. You got five, ten minutes. Come back in here. Do it again. I came back in. I did it again. And they said, this is the guy. This is, you're our guy. And I went, okay, have a good night. Right. Jerks. 
And I did some, uh, I went back to doing advertising work and I got a commercial and I did some voiceover work and so forth. And then I got a call flying out to New York, meet John, read in studio. John hires me on the spot. And seven days later, I'm in Seattle interviewing some kid about how he's hanging signs on homeless people to advertise for his website. Now you're, you know, you're in the Daily Show. Now, now, then, did you have to move to New York, or since you were doing yeah, it remote, because you yeah. said if you went to Seattle, but you were in New had York. to move to New York. Yeah, my first piece, I left Chicago, flew straight to Seattle, shot it, came back, packed up, put everything in a truck, and flew to uh, New York on September 11th of 2007. No, 2005, and. Um, and I left New York for good after being done with The Daily Show on September 20th, 2007. So it was about two years exactly. Now, had you been in New York before? Yeah, I'd been there quite a few times for work and for fun and all that, but uh, had never really had never lived there. Now, how did you like how'd you like living in the city? It was fantastic. I had a friend who said, you got to live in Manhattan because you'll never do it after you do it. And he said, and you'll never do it if you don't do it first. If you move to Brooklyn, you're going to stay in Brooklyn. You might move to Queens might move to Staten Island, but you won't move to Manhattan. And I said, all right. So we lived on the Upper West Side and did that for a year. And then we moved down to uh, Manhattan Beach, which is right next to Brighton Beach, all the way at the bottom of Brooklyn. The only way you can get further is to go to Rockaway. That's I've been to Rockaway. I did a, yeah. hell, I did a hell comedy show there once. It was yeah. like, by the time I got on stage, it was like, oh, you could drink pitchers for like five bucks. And I was it at a breezy point or was it, it, it was, at Jones Beach? It was Beach called or? All American Bar. It was in Rockaway Beach. I remember that. It oh, was, man. It was crazy. But so now, so you get done the Dilly Show. Yeah. And now, did your time run up or did you leave? Or Yeah, my, my contract was up and they said, look, your contract is up. You're going to New Orleans to shoot this movie. Uh, it was an independent movie that never saw the light of day. And... Um, uh, when you get back from New Orleans, there will be a writer strike happening, and then your contract will lapse at the end of this year, and we're not offering you another contract. And I said, "Oh, you guys, who do you think you are?" You know, and I lost my mind. Um, I, I didn't pitch a fit or anything, but I did say, "Like, what are you? Is John going to come say goodbye?" And they said, "No, the the CEO doesn't say goodbye to every male guy that leaves." And I was like, first of all." I'm not a mailroom guy. I'm a correspondent. We work together. And if he's not going to come down here, tell him I think he's a coward. And uh, she said, uh, are you sure you really want to say that? And I said, yeah. I wish now I hadn't said that. You know, but, <laughs> you know, whatever. I say it now just to be honest, to say, like, I didn't leave, like, Mr. Happy. Very few people do leave that place, Mr. or Miss Happy. Um, but I had a great experience. I got fantastic representation out of it and a, and a lot of great uh, exposure. And I got to live in New York with a job. For two years. Right. You know, which is once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You so your, your contract's up and all that stuff. So then when do you decide, do you decide I'm going to L.A. then? Is that yeah. when you said, I got to do this? Yeah, I said, all right, well, I'm going to New Orleans tomorrow, and my last piece airs tonight, so <laughs> goodbye. And I, my wife and my kid, my kid was four months old at the time, and they were living down in Brighton Beach. And uh, I went to New Orleans, and I was at New Orleans, and, a, and, an, and an RV was coming down the the I was you know right on like uh, I don't know Poncho train or one of those one of those streets you know and um, this RV comes rolling by and I looked at it and I said man I'm gonna rent an RV and drive it to Hollywood I'm moving to Los Angeles and it was that simple I called my wife I said we're renting an RV and we're driving to Los Angeles and she said uh do you, are we and I said look the cost of living is cheaper out there than New York and I'm gonna have to find work either way let's go now while we still have a little money in the bank and let's do it in a way that we'll remember. And so we drove cross country, took 10 days, went wherever we wanted, went to Graceland, went to Shenandoah Valley, went to the Grand Canyon, took our time and had a, an amazing trip. 
and moved to Los Angeles, moved to Sherman Oaks. Okay, so now when you get here, did you still have the same representation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was still in New York, but he believed in me. He said, I did a bunch of shows at the uh, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in, in New York at the UCB, and uh, he came to every single show I did. And so this guy, Fred, he, you know, he earned a special spot in my heart. Uh, and funny enough, like, just a couple months after I got out here, I booked a film. I did a, a movie with Seth Rogen and uh, Anna Faris called Observe and Report. Right. And um, it didn't do real well in the in the theaters, but it's kind of been a, a cultish film since. So I'm, I'm very glad I did it. It was a great experience. I mean, I was awestruck by how cool Seth Rogen was when you consider how young he was, how successful he was. He was amazingly cool. Even without that, he was cool. Um, but uh, so I did that. And then right after that, there was this whole, like, work stoppage, this, like, SAG conflict work stoppage thing. And my man, my uh, my uh, agents, uh, my agency was being devoured by another agency, and they were firing people left and right, and they fired my agent. And my agent said, well, they fired me. And I said, okay, where are we going? Because he had come and seen every show right. that I did. I mean, he, he, knew me, yeah. he knew me in a way that only my wife really knows me or my best friends would know me performance-wise. And I said, I'll go wherever you go. So I was with Fred Hassagan of Brooklyn for, you know, about a year. And things got really, really dicey there. I was getting no work. I would go into auditions, and they go, yeah, are you still doing the Daily Show? And you go, yeah. I've been gone <laughs> from there for a year and a half, man. You know, um, but he stuck by my side, and he kept putting me out there, you know, kept giving me shots. And uh, one day I got an opportunity to go in and read for Larry Charles, who was uh, one of the co, you know, conspirators on Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm right. and all that. And I got hired by Larry to do a, a, a pet project of his, a, a pilot project that was, he was writing it and directing it, and no network or anybody was allowed to come in and watch. It was all his. And... Uh, and I had kind of a reawakening of like that that moment that I had with my with my uh, college professor where I went, that's right, I can do this, and I don't need, you know, this studio or that studio or this theater or that. Th all I need is one person to believe in me, and then I just rise up to their expectations, and that's all I did. I just said, just make Larry happy, just do what's going to make Larry happy. And Larry said, whatever makes you happy, that's what makes me happy. And I went, got it, and that's what I did, you know. And then things started coming. I got some some commercial work and i got a little here a little something there i got a, a bit part on this is 40 and you know little well, things here and there with the commercials i know well you're uh, you're this, you're in a geico commercial that runs it's uh there's a progressive commercial Progr i'm sorry yeah, yeah progressive yeah. where the yeah. the machine yeah yeah well now before that what were some of the other commercials you've got i did uh vitamin water i did uh, t-mobile i did a huge t-mobile campaign now who was because i know i know there's they've had so many different campaigns which one the t-mobile commercials were the ones where the the pretty girl in the pink dress first okay. showed up and it was she and I and a guy named Andrew West, who's a very talented young guy. He played iPhone, I played AT&T, and she played T-Mobile. And so I was like schlubby, fat, white business schlub, you know, like gross, icky businessman guy, which is a role I'm born to play, you know. And uh, they were very successful. They ran them like crazy. And it it took care of my, my improv and acting habit for a couple of years, you know until Larry came around and, and gave me a shot at something on the theatrical side. And, and once you've worked with a guy like Larry Charles, the next conversation you have in a room with someone is, whoa, whoa, what's Larry like? You know? Right. And thankfully the answer was, he loved me, I loved him. It was fantastic. And, and it was really what I needed to, you know, it's such a difficult business because it's like you can't whine and complain. It's not, uh, 
it's not one of the world's most dangerous jobs, but it's certainly one of the hardest jobs going because of the competition. You know, you can't whine and complain about, oh, I broke a finger or anything like that, but you can complain about, I haven't worked in a year and a half, and I've been putting myself out there, and I'm busting my ass trying to do it. Um, so to have an experience like I had at the Daily Show where I felt underappreciated, and maybe, you know, I don't blame them because I don't think I fit. I think that was one of those moments where I was struck by, this is a huge opportunity, you better take it, as opposed to, this is a huge opportunity, unfortunately, you don't play the kind of music they play, right. so you should bow out and say thank you very much. I don't know anybody that would do that, you know, uh, on principle of, right. well, I'm not going to be able to give you the best because I don't really do what you do. I'm not political. I'm not, I, don't, I don't like snark. I don't like, I don't like that. I like... I like dark. I like you thought your curtains were drawn. I saw you, and here's how you behave. Now laugh. You know, that's much more my type of comedy. Um, so, I, I, you know, to get an opportunity to work with a guy like Larry, who I respected, it really healed a lot of the wounds that I had from my Daily Show experience where I felt like I failed, and they hated me, and they're jerks, and da 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 And I went, oh, it was all just a job thing. And here's another job thing, and it's a guy who loves you and respects you and cares about you and, and gives you an opportunity to do a thing. And it just opened up a whole new, uh, you know, joie de vivre. Well, that show didn't get picked up. No. Okay. No, no, no. I never even saw that show. Okay. It got, the whole, it got all wrapped up in all this stuff, and I don't even want to go into that. Bull, but bull like crap, yeah. All the bull crap. But Larry hired me to do an episode of Curb. They were doing a season in New York, and he goes, all right, this is ridiculous. I got the guy. And they called me, and he said, you're going you're gonna to be a local hire. You're going to have to put yourself up. You're going to have to fly yourself out. But you're in scenes with Ricky Gervais and Larry David and Jeff Garland. And it's for me. And I said, "You go, Larry, I'll do anything for right. you. I'm in. I'm there. And I got there, and again, I felt supported and loved. And, you know, from a show that's so, so dark and so, you know, uh, snipey, I thought, oh, God, they're going to eat me alive. I'm going to go in there with my insecurities and eat me alive. And it was very supportive, very friendly. Larry, I've heard that. I've had, Larry I've had David a, could not be nicer. I've heard. I've had a ton of guests on here who have been on Curb. And I've also had some so people great. who've written for Seinfeld. Yep. And they said the same thing. He's yep. just, he's supportive. Because he was, he was that comic that, that no one, no one, like yeah. the crowds didn't like him. He Talk wouldn't even go on stage. He would yeah. walk off stage. He'd only go on late if the crowd was right. Yep. And he would, if there was like more than like five people in the room, he wouldn't even want to go on. Yep. You know, Talk about had, underappreciated. Right thing i mean when he was at snl he uh he that's where he and uh, julia louis dreyfus met each other because she was kind of like a darling like they liked her but they didn't like larry but they had a connection and so she tried to hook up with larry to have him write stuff for her to to try to you know reach down and, and pull him up and they just had this connection you know and um obviously that carried through in seinfeld and worked very well you know and that's you know the next chapter of the thing is then uh, Veep comes along, right? So my, my Veep came yeah. from. Did, and how did how did that come up? Well, Veep came up when I got hired to do Observe and Report, and this feels like a nightmare scenario that maybe didn't happen to me, but I know it happened. <laughs> I got hired to do Observe and Report. I also auditioned for a show, a movie called In the Loop, which was written and directed by a guy named Armando Iannucci, who had right. done a show called The Thick of It in in England, very big show um, in England. Uh, politically based uh, show and in the audition process I could tell this guy Armando likes me and I like him and I like the way he works and he's a no he's an OBS kind of guy he cuts straight to the quick and says do this I love that stop doing that you know um, just kind of like very succinct and I could tell I love working with this guy and I got cast in both at the same time in the loop and observe and report 
and my representation said, Observant Report is a big studio film. It's big names. It's Ray Liotta. It's Anna Ferris. It's Michael Pena. It's Seth Rogen. You can't get any bigger than that right now. And the director is this kid that everybody loves, Jody Hill. He's got this show coming out on HBO called Eastbound and Down. He's going to be the next big thing in comedy. Don't pass up this opportunity. He's the next Adam McKay type of thing. And I said, I appreciate all that. I'm doing the other one because that's what I do. I do what that guy does. I don't do. Right. And I just learned this lesson from The Daily Show, which was, if you're being offered something that you know ahead of time you don't necessarily do, then you got to say thank you very much. I can't do it because I don't want to misrepresent myself or give you less than you deserve. And they said, all due respect, at this point in your career, you're really not in a position to make this decision. We're making it for you. You're doing Observant Report. Now, I thought Observant Report was great, but I knew that I didn't fit, and I knew that the role that I was going to be doing was kind of wet blanket, brown paper bag, straight man. And... Uh, all that is to say, Armando cast me in, in the loop. I couldn't do it. He said, fine. They, <coughs> they gave some of the lines to uh, Zach Woods. Uh, his role was very similar to mine, so they just slid some of the lines over and threw the rest out. And when Veep came along, it's Armando Iannucci. Right. That's the creator, writer. <coughs> it is, it's the American version dealing with the vice president, the American version of the British show, the thick of it. And uh, I went into the casting director, and I said, I know you got me reading for this role, which I think was the, the role that Tony Hale did and won okay. the Emmy for. And I said, I know you got me reading for that. I'm flattered. I think that's great. <clears throat> but I really think you should have me reading for this other role because that's the role that I was cast in in his film. And she kind of looked at me like, uh-huh, sure, sure. Right, it right. sounds like a, everybody's, a con, got, everybody's yeah. got one of these con stories <laughs> of like, oh, no, I was really close to being huge. And it's And I said, I hold due respect. You do your job great. You've cast me in many things, but this is the role that I'm supposed to be reading for. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to read you for this one, and we'll see how it goes. And then I get a call two days later. I'm so sorry. Um, we, we Armando said, yes, you should be reading for I'm sorry. We And I said, don't, please, don't. It sounds like I'm spinning a web, you know, like I'm spinning a yarn. Right. You know? So <coughs> I, I forgive, obviously. And she brought me in for that, and I went all the way to the test. And the test was myself and Matt Walsh. And when I looked at Walsh, I went, ah, oh, he's perfect for this role he's five years older than me which means he's just the sweet spot for this role for this guy that's kind of like whatever who cares right and i just kind of had this sense of like you're not getting this this is not going to go your way and i did a great job at the test and everything and armando at one point put his hand on my shoulder and he said listen if i can't get you in this i'm going to get you in somewhere don't worry if i have to i'll write something for you and i thought that's nice of him to say you know, we're back to that daily show. Right. Daily. Like, yeah, yeah, right. Nice. Make the kid feel good before you kick him out. And um, I came in and auditioned for a couple small roles throughout the season, and I thought, it's just not going to happen. And then I get a call saying, you're going to Baltimore at the end of the month. You're going to be shooting Veep. He did write something for you. And I was like, oh, that's great. And I had seen the casting director several times since, and she said, boy, you really made an impression on him. He said he's going to write something for you if he has to. And I thought, yeah, you know, valet. Right. Or something, you know. Who knows it's going to be Roger Furlong, the evil nemesis, you know. The, Who's the, great. The meanest bastard on the show. <laughs> and what a, what a great uh, compliment to get from a creative team like this. I mean, these guys are, are Ian Martin and, and, and Chris Addison and, and Simon Blackwell and Armando Iannucci and, oh, God, Tony and all these guys. Just unbelievable minds that write fantastic satire, you know, and, and realistic characters and they've written me this bastard of a character and i show up 
And immediately I feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to be improvising with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. And the way they do it is you show up on a Sunday or what have you, and Monday and Tuesday are spent reading the script and rehearsing the scenes and then putting the script away and improvising and then re-improvising. And then you go away for a 12-hour lunch, and you come back, and there's the script with your words in it from yesterday's rehearsal. And now they've built off of that. So the character was kind of built through their, their, you know, original idea, but also through my own improvisation, which I was like, oh, oh, I do declare. <laughs> I'm going to have a spell here, you know. I mean, it's uh, what, a, what a compliment to, ha- to see your words written on a script right. that these guys are writing. And that first episode, I could just tell that it worked so well. And last year they brought me back for... six episodes i was unable to do one my daughter got six so they had to write me out of it but it was like to get to do six out of ten episodes on a show like that with a cast like that with that kind of writing with that kind of just an incredible experience you know now did that get you help to get legit i got legit at the exact same time that i got that first episode of veep so we were almost in that position again except what happened was legit happened about maybe 36 hours before so it was like we're drafting the contract for legit, and we get a call from Veep. So my agent goes back and writes in there, we'll also be allowed to do as many episodes of Veep as time will allow. Because you know, studios can say, we don't want you doing other shows because we don't need conflict of interest. And you're over there, and people associate you with that show when they should associate with this show. So he wrote this thing in, which means I can do as many Veeps as time will allow, which means none so far this year because time just hasn't allowed it. But... So I did them both. I did I did uh, Veep, and then I came back and went to Portland and shot the pilot for Legit. And then it was almost an entire year before we found out that we had been actually picked up okay. for Legit. So and you then shot we started the pilot. Shoot, right. Now, was it a big audition process for you? or It was th- one of the most underwhelming experiences ever. I went down to the casting director's office. It was uh, Wendy O'Brien was the casting director on it. And, uh, and I got down there, and... I didn't really know Jim. I had seen the stand-up. I looked it up on YouTube and stuff, and I was like, whoa, this guy's super edgy. There's no way this happens. And the pilot episode is about him taking a guy with muscular dystrophy in a wheelchair to a prostitute to get him laid for the first time and probably only time because he's dying. Never going to make it on the air on any television. Never. What am I doing here? And I'm sitting in the waiting room, and they're taking a long time, so I go out to check my car. I got a ticket. So I feed the meter, take the ticket, I'm furious. And I go in there, and I walk in the room. This is actually at the callback, and I go in the callback room, and Jim is sitting there, and Peter O'Fallon, the co-creator and, and director of most of the episodes. And uh, and Peter goes, I love what you did in your audition. Let's just do that again. I go, okay. And Jim looks at me and goes, hey, mate, and looks back down at his paper. And I was told we were going to be improvising. And Jim reads every line on the paper, never looks at me again. And I was like, well. That's the end of that. That's, right. That's not happening. Thanks for the ticket. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the thanks, drive. Thanks for that $45. Yeah, I lived in Granada Hills at the time. So thanks for the hour and a half drive, the $45 ticket, and the waste of my time, you jerk. And uh, I get a call that next day saying, you got it. You're going to Portland in a month. And, you know, the day after that, you're going to Baltimore. Yeah, you're going to Baltimore to shoot uh, Veep. So now what's happened is I have this wonderful dance, which I can't, I'm not complaining. Don't ever understand this is complaining, but I got this wonderful dance where it's like, you're in Baltimore, get home. You got a, you got an episode of Legit right. to do, you know, back and forth, back and forth, which is a dream. You know, it's the thing that you that you always wanted. And it also culminates in, it, 
it's a thing that I always knew I needed and wanted to succeed was some people that I respected to respect me in kind and to treat me as such and to trust me to do what I do. I've done it long enough that I know how to do my way. Right. And I understand that your job is direct. So direct me in your way. But, you know, I always use the analogy. I play the tuba. I showed up and you asked me to play the saxophone. They're not even in the same family. Right. You know, I mean, it's like you can't. You can't switch it up that much. Yeah, totally. You know, you can ask me to play a trombone or a trumpet because they got the same mouthpiece and I'm sure I can figure it out. But, you know, it it's become this amazing experience. And then the, the, the code to all that is then I get to go and do the heat, which is another amazing dude that I respect so much, Paul Feig, and the, his approach to things and the way it's like I had learned on Legit and Veep how to really craft myself into the actor that I am now. Uh, and shape things so that when I got on state on set with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, the biggest woman in comedy, right. and the Academy Award winner, exactly. I'm not going to go. Bye, 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 bye. I just have the confidence to go. I got an idea. How many times did You know, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, and then I'll adjust. You know, and it was a fantastic experience. It was a very funny movie, and, uh, and it then, worked. Now, how did uh, was it a lot of makeup for you? Two and a half hours. Vincent Skeeky was a. Uh, 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 makeup artist on SNL, and he did my makeup. He does a lot of uh, effects and stuff, uh, effects makeup. Brilliant guy, and uh, he did my makeup for two and a half hours every day that I shot. And we'd sit there and listen to music and talk, and you just had a great time. And it That's was a funny. really great experience. Well, I also saw makeup. You were on Grimm. Yes. So, in the, but that was a lot of makeup then now, too, right? Now Grimm, it's all computer graphics. Okay, so you don't. They just was... put yellow dots on you. And you do a couple takes with the yellow dots on, and then they take the the yellow dots off, and then they go back and they do it with computers. I couldn't. I thought, yeah, right. How is this going to look? I saw it on the commercial. I, saw, oh, I, went, I went, holy crap! I went, I went, wait a second, because he turns into like an in interview, it's like, like a pig ah, monster. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. what the hell? My daughter was very unhappy with that. <laughs> How old is she? She's six. Was she, she scared? Was very, it looked too real. She was very mad. I don't like that. You shouldn't have shown me that. <laughs> so now, now are, you, are you are you done shooting legit or you're on hiatus this week? We're on hiatus this week. We go back Monday. My first scene Monday will be in my underwear on the beach sitting in a lawn chair as the waves crash over me. And now we should be nice and comfortable. Where are you shooting that at? In Venice. We shoot, we shoot the show in Venice. Okay. The show takes place in Venice. We have a crappy little house in Venice that we shoot in. And uh, we shoot all over locations in Venice. It's it's a really unique experience because not many people use the streets of this city for right. filming anymore. And let alone it's a character. It's absolute. Venice is a character in this show. It's oh, a, yeah. Well, Venice is Venice. I mean, it's yeah. just you know. I mean, I, I, I know because Californication takes place there. Yeah. But but there should be Venice is just a very different animal. Oh yeah. So that's good. Well, thank you for coming on, man. Absolutely. So, um, Thanks so for having me, man. What's, uh, so what, where can people be looking, find your information about you, stuff like that? You know, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter, at Bacadol. Spell it for these people. B-A-K-K-E-D-A-H-L. You know what you can do? You can go online, go to IMDb, look up legit, and you'll find the actual the spelling of my name. And then you can follow me on Twitter, at Bacadol, and watch legit. We come back uh, February 24th on FXX. Check your local listings. And I guess you can also be seen uh, on, uh, is the, I think the first season of Veep is on DVD. Yeah, right? Veep is on DVD. I think the second season should be coming out soon. The and second, they already happened. Well, you yeah. were in the first or second season? I was in both the first okay. and second. They're shooting the third right now. And uh, I know the, the DVD for The Heat is out there already and doing very well. It's a great movie. Very and, funny. Yeah, and if you haven't caught it, catch it. You won't. Go watch uh, seasons of Legit on uh, season one of Legit on Hulu. 
and then go watch The Heat, and you won't believe it's me. I know. It's crazy. Well, I want to thank you, man. It was great Absolutely. to have you on. Thank you. Uh, people, also, uh, follow me at Twitter. Also, don't follow James. You follow him, but follow me, too, at Cooper Talk. I always tweet some jokes there. Also, uh, send me an email, cooper at indy 100 Com. I always like to hear from you people and I like to answer you and tell me who you're going to like to see as a guest. I have some great guests. Uh, the week of Christmas, I have the guy who played Scott Farkas on A Christmas Story. Uh, Zach Ward's coming on, which is, uh, I, I love that movie and it was great to get him. Also, if you want to hear old episodes of Cooper Talk, go to www.coopertalk.net. I have about 205 episodes up there. And I'm redoing the site. I'm putting pictures of me and all my guests. So now you can see who they are when you go. You might not know who, let's say, you know, Peter Honorati was when you see him you go oh I know that guy he's been in that so do that and if you want to hear me on your smartphone go to uh, you can do iTunes or Stitcher and just type in one word Cooper Talk so you guys have a great Thanksgiving I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guest remember eat your veggies take your vitamins drink your water have a good day